0: ...that great leap from chapter 12, where we've been these many weeks into the next chapter, Uh, but we are still in the same conversation. Jesus is continuing the same discourse, uh, interspersed with comments and questions from his disciples and from the thronging crowds that uh, surround them. Jesus has been speaking, as you will recall, and we've been hearing over the past few weeks about ultimate realities judgment and hell among them. He's warned that the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour, that the unfaithful servant taken by surprise by the Master's coming will be beaten with many blows, that there is a court date appointed for every one of us at the bench of the judge of mankind, and uh, that all will appear there uh, either to be punished or to be acquitted before him. Those who will be punished will pay for their sins. They will pay to the very last penny. Just then, as Jesus was teaching these things, some folk brought to Jesus' attention a couple of terrible current events. One of political persecution... The other, the collapse of a tower, both of which cost many human lives. Speaking of judgment, they seem to be saying to Jesus, How about those people? Boy, they must have really done something bad. They must really have earned God's wrath. Obviously, they've been judged for something, that they've died the way they have. But Jesus draws a lesson from those terrible disasters that is surprising, to say the least, and which no doubt rocked them back on their heels when Jesus said it to them. May it do the same to us. Let's pray. Father, many, many words are spoken and heard by us. Words, words, words. But we pray... Father, that the words we hear now will be the voice of God and that our hearts, prepared by the Holy Spirit, will receive them just that way. Speak, Father, we pray. Send thy spirit to do this work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 13, the first nine verses this morning. perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, "'Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground?' And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Maybe you heard or read about the arrest of actor George Clooney on Friday Outside the embassy of Sudan. He and 17 others, including a couple of congressmen and even his own father, were there to call for immediate action to stop Sudan's blockage of food and other humanitarian aid to their own people. Quote We're trying to bring attention to an ongoing emergency. He said this after his release, one that's got about a six-week timetable before the rainy season starts and thousands of people are going to die from it. Sudan, he says, needs to stop randomly killing its own people, stop raping them, and stop starving them. That's all we ask. Well, kudos to... George Clooney, Uh, you may well be familiar with the fact that half a million people in Sudan's Nuba Mountains and Blue Nile regions risk starvation because President Bashir is blocking food and supplies from reaching them. He's also been bombing them and driving them from their homes into caves. It's a terrible atrocity that I think might have uh, made more or received more attention were it not for the atrocities taking place in Syria right now, or maybe if our interests were more in Sudan than in Syria. But at any rate, we could look at at a number of places. We could look at uh, North Korea, at uh, the starving of that people under the iron fist of its government. Uh, We could consider any number of examples of terrible suffering in the world And through history. Things have not changed much. People have long and deeply suffered under the terror of their very own authorities and governors. Pontius Pilate apparently had very little trouble with killing those under his authority, as demonstrated by this terrible event known to us only from this passage of the Bible. Presumably, Pilate had sent a detachment of Roman soldiers to kill some Galileans even as they worshipped, mingling their own blood with their sacrifices. Maybe it would help you to grasp the gravity of this offense if you thought of it in more modern terms, like terrorists crashing through The sanctuary doors just now and killing us and mixing our blood with the communion wine. It was likely one of the top news stories of that day. Uh, It shared a place in the headlines with another report, that of a collapse of the tower in Siloam that killed 18 people. That piece of history, like Pilate's slaying of the Galileans, uh, is known only to us from the scripture. But the point is, uh, these people who brought the news of these deaths to Jesus' attention at just this time, as Dr. Luke points out, just as he was preaching on the judgments of God, punishment, and hell, I say these people weren't making the right connections between what they were seeing and, and reality and truth. They knew what was going on in their world. They they understood the news anyway. But they did not know how properly to process that news and to interpret it and to apply to themselves what they were seeing in the world of their day. What to do with this, these deaths these murders and these deaths and the collapse of the tower apparently their best understanding of it all the best sense they could make of it was that these people who died must have been really really bad you know they must have been really sinful must have done something to to make god angry somehow deserve to die for some specific offense or offenses they had committed In that, they were a lot like Job's so-called friend, uh, Eliphaz, who loved to to draw hard and fast connections between particular sins and suffering. And between suffering and particular sins. As he put it to Job, who that was innocent ever perished. These people didn't grasp the real significance of the suffering and of the the death of others. They didn't grasp the significance that is for themselves because they oftentimes drew simply too close a connection between others' sins and their sufferings, and vice versa. We fail as well on this score. But on the opposite end of the spectrum... We see suffering and death all around us, and that in the very forms in which it existed in Jesus' day. We've seen great towers fall and people die. The images are imprinted indelibly on our consciences of of great towers in New York collapsing on 9-11. And we're witnesses through our news media of the mixing and mingling of the blood of religious martyrs with their sacrifices, and of citizens' blood with the ground of their own homelands. We've seen tsunamis take thousands, tens, and hundreds of thousands of lives, as in the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami, or the triple disaster that we remembered uh, recalled the one-year anniversary of last week, Uh, in Japan on 3.11. But we err, in our understanding, like they did then, except, as I say, on the polar opposite end from the Jews in Jesus' day, uh, the first things off of our modern lips consisting of flimsy attempts to clear God's name, to clear God from any sort of responsibility whatsoever for these things. And certainly, they would not be judgments of God. The modern says, "Mm, we sophisticated Westerners uh, can't possibly see anything that resembles the judgments of God in these disasters. And so we miss the point just as badly as the Jews of Jesus' day did, only for a failure of understanding in the opposite direction what am I saying? Are those things the deaths of the Sudanese people, Syrian bloodshed, thousands of Japanese lives crushed under a rushing wall of water? Am I saying that these things are specific judgments of God? Well, frankly, I don't know and neither do you. They could be. They could very well be. Knowing that the persecution in Sudan that Mr. Clooney protests is actually largely focused against Christians, and specifically against Christians by a Muslim government in the name of Islam, causes me to be very circumspect about suggesting that their suffering is a direct judgment of God against them. 9-11, on the other hand, could well have been God's judgment upon our nation. I don't think it unreasonable, do you? Based on all that the Bible has to say for us to expect the judgment of God to fall upon our nation as saturated by sin as we have become. But we don't know for sure those are the secret things of God's mind. He knows. I will not confidently assert nor deny that these are specific judgments of God. What I must say is what Jesus says. Something that neither Eliphaz in Job's day, nor Mr. Clooney in our own would say, would probably even think to say. But which Jesus teaches is the great lesson of the horrors, the disasters, the attacks, the atrocities that we are witnessing all around the world today. He puts it, this lesson, in the form of a question. Do you think that these Galileans, and now maybe it will be helpful for us if we fill in the blank here, these Japanese, these Sudanese, these Syrians, these North Koreans, were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam, or 3,000 in New York, fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem or in New York? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We see tragedy all around us. Every day, even in our own commonwealth of late. Entire towns flattened and twisted into rubble by the storms that have come through just in recent weeks. And we're shocked and grieved by these things that we see, and rightly so. We're horrified by the way people have died, and let us never grow cold to human suffering while we are in our ease. In fact, that may be precisely our problem. In our ease, we don't really reckon with it at all, and certainly not with the message that it bears. The tragedy is we're all going to die. The death rate is the same Everywhere. It's the same here in Owensboro as it is in South Sudan, 100%. In the face of death, Jesus says, a lesson is plain. You're going to die too and face the judgment of God. Are you ready? If death comes suddenly upon you, as it has upon so many, when they were least expecting it, are you ready now? Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. As we look at these heart-rending events in our world today, we must rend our hearts we must be moved to repentance we should weep we must weep with those who weep right now in many parts of the world but we should also weep for ourselves for our sin Says Jesus, looking at the catastrophes and the holocausts in his day, both of political terror and what we might call a natural disaster, he tells us to weep for our own rebellion against the Almighty. He tells us to look in them and through those things to the great judgment day that is coming. As John Calvin wisely said, All the calamities that happen in the world are testimonies of the wrath of God. The torture and killing, the raping and the pillaging that take place under the heavy hands of cruel dictators, the sight of jet airplanes crashing into towers and 23-foot walls of water racing across the landscape at 60 miles an hour. These are portents. These are Warnings and small by comparison to the judgment of God that awaits those who will not turn in repentance and faith to Him through Christ Jesus. You won't hear that in the press today. That's exactly how the prophets, including Jesus, understood these very sort of events in their own day. And so used them as, as lessons, as points to turn people to God. Or, as was more often the case, to steer them back to God. These things are God's megaphone to get your attention to wake you up, to call you, to turn from your sin to him, to give yourself completely over to him and holy from your hearts to your maker and your only redeemer and your only hope of salvation. If these disasters and these sufferings of humanity do not have that effect on you, then for you, they will be double tragedies. And for that reason. Every deadly calamity, wrote John Piper in connection with the tsunami back in 2004, that reportedly killed more than 200,000 people, every deadly calamity is a merciful call from God to the living to repent. Let our hearts be broken that God means so little to us. Grieve that he is the whipping boy to be blamed for pain, but not praised for pleasure. Lament that he makes headlines only when man mocks his power, but no headlines for 10,000 days of wrath withheld. Let us rend our hearts that we love life more than we love Jesus Christ. Let us cast ourselves on the mercy of our Maker. He offers it through the death and resurrection of His Son. I've used that word repent several times this morning, just as Jesus used that word often. But lest you should leave here today and not understand exactly what Jesus is demanding of you right now, let me explain to you what he means by repent. Repentance is, quite simply, a change of heart that results in a change of life. It begins with confession. Repentance starts by confessing the sinfulness of your own sin against God. It acknowledges to him that you've done wrong, that you have broken his law, that you have failed to do what he has told you to do, and you have done exactly those things that he told you not to do. Repentance is just simple, blatant honesty about the pride, about the lust. About the selfishness and self righteousness and self centeredness and even self pity of your own life. Then, after confession, repentance is contrition. That is a deep sorrow for what you have been and what you have done. Repentance feels the sting, the sadness over sin, not just because you got caught, not just because of the consequences, but because you're grieved at the very thought that you've grieved God by your sins. And then after confession and contrition, repentance makes a course correction. Repentance Turns from chasing after sin and its pleasures to chasing after Christ and his pleasure. Repentance is a turn, basically, from sin to Christ. And it's not just a one-time deal. Repentance. Jesus, in this single passage, speaks of repentance in two different tenses. He speaks of it as a sort of once-and-for-all sort of thing that shapes the whole rest of your life thereafter, and as a day-by-day repentance over and again, putting away sin, turning back to Christ again, every day, every hour. Now, you covenant children who have trusted in the Lord, since before you can remember, will not remember a specific day that you first repented from your sin. Your parents have been helping you to repent long before you even knew what repent meant, even knew the word repent. But those of you who came to know Christ later in life, remember how with determination of your will You decided and turned away from a life of pursuing sin to a life of pursuing Christ. Alas, there may also be a few of you here in this room who never have. You never have turned away from your sin to Christ. You never have repented. You haven't even started Well, this is your moment. Right now, right here, turn to Christ. Tell him, tell him, I'm leaving my sin behind right now, and I am making you, Lord, my Lord, all in all. From this point, now and forevermore. But then, don't stop there. Repentance, as I pointed out, Jesus pointed out, is a daily thing. It's a constant thing. It's, a, it's an hourly work. Repentance is a constant turning from your sin back to Christ Again and again. Sin in our lives presents us with this perpetual struggle, doesn't it? You've known this. You've experienced this, you Christians. A war going on in which you must constantly look back at your captain, at your king, to fix your eyes on him again as you follow him in this fight of the faith. Repent of it all. Keep repenting. Keep turning to Christ. Repent from all of your sins. Philip Henry wisely said, Some people do not like much, uh, like to hear much of repentance. But I think it's so necessary that if I should die in the pulpit, I should desire to die preaching repentance. And if I should die out of the pulpit... I should desire to die practicing it. In other words, let repentance be constant. Speaking of which, of death, that is, and death finding you repenting, let me ask you this. It's a quite a direct question. When will you do this? When will you repent and turn to Christ? I mean, if you've not yet repented of your sins to this point, if not right now, right here, then when? I ask you because the time for repentance, the time for you to repent, is flying. And it's short. You may be thinking to yourself, well, I've got plenty of time to turn to God later, but you don't. You don't. And the time you do have may be shorter than you expect. The very fact that you're here right now and hearing this and alive to hear it means that God has been very patient with you. Very, very patient. But God's patience runs out. That must be one of the lessons, I think, if not the main one, of that parable that Jesus adds to all of this about the unfruitful fig tree. For three years, the owner of the vineyard has been returning to this tree, waiting for it, looking for it to bear fruit, which means that he's probably been watching it longer than that, knowing that it takes several years before you even begin to look for the first crop. He's given that tree all sorts of time. But with no fruit in sight, he says to his vine dresser, it's time to go. It's just using up ground. It's dead weight. Cut it down. Burn it in the fire. Get rid of it. I'm, of course, conflating other passages about cutting dead branches out and burning them. But you get the point. The first and and most direct application of the parable was, of course, to the church of Jesus' own day. God had borne with Israel with much patience and for a long, long time. He had called and called and called and called Israel to come back to him in repentance. Jesus came issuing the very same call, issuing it then in his flesh from his flesh, his incarnation. Still, after all of that, she would not turn to him. And now in Jesus' day, the axe was laid right at the root. It was ready to fall on the church of Jesus' day and cut her off with one terrible blow. And it did happen some 40 years later, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, That axe fell. It took the form of the Roman army who came and destroyed Jerusalem. Not one charred stone of the temple was left on another when it was over. But surely the same principle must be true for those for any of you whom God has called and called and called, only to be refused by you or ignored by you or deferred by you to some other day. God will not wait for you forever. He won't. Now, he's very...